Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at what politicians say. How can we analyse it, and what do we learn as a result? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Today our focus is on what politicians say and on processes for analysing what politicians say. Politicians' speech is, of course, a fundamental part of politics. We can think of it as a product of, and therefore a window into, deeper political forces. And in itself, it also helps to constitute the political realm and how we think of all the parts of that realm. Analysis of what politicians say, and indeed of what others say, but we're focusing today on politicians, is a tool that many political scientists use to explore a whole range of different aspects of politics. Many approaches are used in doing so, and these include increasingly sophisticated techniques for analysing vast bodies of speech systematically. Well, as listeners to last week's episode may have noticed, we're showcasing the work of some of our PhD students here on the podcast at the moment. And I'm very happy to say that I'm joined now by two stellar students who are using cutting-edge methods to analyse politicians' speech, particularly focusing on what politicians say in parliaments. And they're doing so to answer some of the most important questions about politics today. They are Lottie Hargrave, who is looking at whether female and male MPs speak differently from each other, and Marcus Kohlberg, who is examining how parliamentarians use populist rhetoric. Lottie and Marcus, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. We're going to talk about the methods that you employ for analysing political speech, and of course we'll also explore your findings. Um, but let's start by looking at the questions that you're seeking to answer through, through these methods and why, why they matter. Lottie, what would you say is your driving question for your research? Hello, Alan. Hello, Marcus. It's lovely to be on the podcast. Um, so in my work, I focus on really the role of gender in sort of studying and understanding elite and voter behaviour in the UK. And on the elite side, I'm really interested in kind of understanding whether gender stereotypes are accurate descriptions of the ways that men and women kind of communicate in British politics. And then on the voter side, I'm interested in how the styles that politicians use sort of influence how voters may evaluate them. And then in particular, whether women politicians sort of face particular negative evaluations for what they do. So basically, do politicians behave in accordance with traditional stereotypes and do voters uphold these traditional stereotypes when evaluating the kind of arguments that politicians make? And can you just give us a little flavour of what, what kinds of stereotypes do we have in mind here that you're exploring? So I'm interested in uh, sort of the political styles that politicians use. So there's this idea in the stereotypical literature that women use kind of, or that women in general use sort of traditional communal styles when, uh, when communicating. So this involves sort of things like being positive and focusing more on the human narrative and, um, and sort of being very empathetic and, and things like that. Whereas we have these traditional stereotypes around men that focus on sort of that they're agentic, so sort of strong leaders and aggressive and sort of cold and statistical in what they do. Um, so I basically want to test whether it's true that politicians actually um, kind of adhere to these stereotypes in political debate. 
so you used an unfamiliar word there for many people, I suspect, agentic. So the idea that men are more likely to kind of see themselves as agents, people who, can, who are doing stuff on their own. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. It's a, one of those words that comes from the sort of traditional literature on, on stereotypes and, and, and role theory and things like that. But yes, exactly. Okay, great. Thank you, Lottie. And uh, Marcus, what is it that is driving your research? Yes, thank you very much for having me, Adam. In my research, I'm interested in the strategic usage of populist anti-establishment rhetoric in parliamentary debates, and then in a later stage, how voters react to such populist statements. In my research, so this is important because I think it's different in the folk sense and in the academic sense, populism is, is defined as a thin ideology that sees politics as this endless struggle of the great people versus the corrupt elites, quote-unquote. And this results in this Manican word we, of like black versus white, everything is either very great or very evil. And so I'm interested in how politicians strategically use these kind of frames when they argue and talk about politics. So, um, I mean, populism is a big issue in uh, contemporary politics at the moment, of course. So I guess you're... Um, kind of keying into the fact that there are concerns about populism and the rise of populism in many countries in order to try to get at just what is going on with uh, populist politicians, populist rhetoric. Yeah, exactly. So I've always been fascinated by the question how like people persuade others in politics and in democratic discourse. But obviously due to the election of, of Donald Trump and Brexit, but also the rise of populist radical right parties in, in continental Europe, this has become very topical. And there are several reasons why we believe that populist rhetoric might influence the quality of democratic discourse and parliamentary debates, and those matters for democratic outcomes potentially and for the quality of democracy overall. So there are several good reasons uh, to study populist rhetoric and its presence in parliamentary debates. Hmm. And we have lots of um, PhD students, lots of people thinking they might want to be PhD students who listen to this podcast. Um, and they'll be intrigued to hear about why, how each of you came by these, uh, these topics for your research. And Lottie, do you want to go first? Um, how, how did you um, come by this focus for your PhD programme? So I think a couple of things, uh, one of which is just, I think these kind of gendered conversational dynamics um, and the experiences that I have directly as a woman is something that's not specific just to politics itself, but we see this all the time in things like department seminars and conversations you have, you know, are, are maybe women interrupted more than men or um, or do you have people sort of mansplaining what you do so I think that these these questions of kind of the gendered forms of communication is something that um, I have direct experience with and it's something that I, I've kind of long you know talked talk to friends about as well um, so I guess I had a, a sort of natural curiosity in, in studying uh, in studying these things I also kind of came to this topic at a time when um, when we had a um, a female leader in power um, so I think it was interesting to see how sort of her experience in politics were, were kind of different to um, like men before her or leaders of the opposition and things like that um, so I suppose sort of personal experience and then just sort of seeing what was going on in, in UK politics at the time is how I kind of came across these topics. And Marcus you were referring there to Trump and the rise of other populists so I guess again it's a reaction to what's happening in the broader world around you. Yes, yes, to some extent, of course, but, but I think my interest in, in political rhetoric started earlier when I was uh, taking part in a, in a debating competition for high school students back in Germany. And, and since then, I've been fascinated by the question, like, what persuades others, like, what arguments are compelling? And what 
I've done, or what we all observed probably since, since 2015, 2016, is on the one hand side that how politicians talk nowadays in the media, but also in parliament sounds very different, but also how family members, friends, peers, people on the, on the tube talk sounds suddenly very different, and they use very different words and very different argumentative styles. And this kind of made me think there's something going on, not only on the policy level, but also in the framing and rhetorical level and discourse level. And this is what, what motivates me, understanding how these things changed and what the implications of this change are. Can you give us an example of that change? So change in how people, regular people talk in their everyday lives? I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, you, in, in Britain, this was particularly like present around the Brexit phenomenon, right? Where people suddenly make this argument, oh, the people have decided or the people want Brexit version X versus Brexit version Y, they don't want this. And obviously these were political statements that were massively simplified, right? The people didn't have, the people, if the people exist, quote unquote, um, didn't have a choice in deciding between different Brexit options, for example, and also it was a very narrow margin. So, so constructing this kind of sense of, of a people, of a, of a nation group, basically, uh, I found that always very fascinating and, and somehow through my German lens also a little bit disturbing. And, but this, this, this transfers also to, to continental Europe, where we have similar arguments where, like, especially in the context of the migration crisis, oh, like the people don't want more immigrants to come or the people like, do not accept more refugees. And these arguments are obviously massively, as I said, massively simplified, and they somehow like, are undemocratic in a way because they neglect the fact that we have pluralist opinions and different opinions in, in societies and in the public. And this is what makes it a populist argument. So these like framing, oh, the, the people want something and the elites, quote unquote, hold, hold us back and they, they won't allow the people to get their will. And exploring this is something that I find very interesting. Mm, great. So we have really interesting and current and important questions from both of you. We'll get on in a little bit to the answers, uh, and I've read your pieces, so I know they're fascinating. Um, but before we get there, we should think about how you uh, develop those answers, what methods you're using in this research. And as I said, you're both um, analysing the speech of politicians in the particular papers that we're focusing on today. And I guess it might be helpful if we just start by understanding what, what's the range of methods that political scientists use in order to analyse speech. And Lottie, do you want to give us a little background briefing on that? Yes, so uh, the most sort of traditional and original methods that we use to study these questions are sort of qualitative approaches. And by that, we basically mean that uh, researchers such as myself, Marcus or you, Alan, would get some sort of political text of interest we would have some concepts in mind that we wanted to measure and we would manually read through these texts and we would kind of categorise bits of them as, as uh, representative of what we're interested in or not. Um, so um, this is stuff that I've done in previous work where I've had kind of a coding scheme in mind, I've had some, some parliamentary speeches and I've gone through and gone, yes, this speech is aggressive, no, this speech is not aggressive, etc., etc. So the sort of traditional approaches to this is that we work with typically much smaller amounts of text and we work through that manually and we kind of code it. So it's, it's based on human judgments and human readings of these texts. And what you're doing now is different from that. So you're using more automated processes. Do you want to tell, tell us what, what you're doing in your own research now? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think the first thing to say is that Marcus and I feel uh, very passionately that although these approaches are sort of automated, we shouldn't think of them as sort of replacing um, the reading of speeches and meaning that we should never read speeches. I think that both of us and the work that we do still have spent a lot of time reading political speeches and assessing and assessing the outputs of them. So I think it's sort of important to say that um, we still see that as, as part of the process. It's just sort of scaling up that process in a way that a human could never do unless we had infinite amounts of time. Um, so uh, in the work that I do, I um, use sort of traditional uh, quantitative text analysis dictionary approaches, which I'll explain a little about, a bit about in a second. And I combine that with um, newer, sort of more innovative approaches in uh, word embedding models. Um, so traditional dictionary approaches is this idea that we would create some list of words that's representative of something that we might care about. So say uh, emotion, I would create a list of words that are representative of emotion. So sort of happiness or joy or anger or sadness and things like that. Um, I would take some texts that I'm interested in, um, apply this list of words to the text and basically see how many of these words um, appear in the text or sort of what proportion of the text is, um, is covered um, by these words. So that's a sort of traditional um, quantitative dictionary approach uh, to studying these questions. But I think uh, the problem that I see with this and, um, is, and that many others have sort of talked about as well is that, of course, context uh, words are very kind of context specific. So a dictionary of words that I might create for, um, let's say, emotion, um, if I'm talking to my friends down the pub versus the way that politicians use emotion in parliamentary debate is a very, very different sort of a thing. Um, so um, in the approach that I use, I try and combine these dictionaries with sort of um, context-specific understanding of how, of how words are used in parliamentary debate specifically. And so we should just explain, you're using this in order to analyse a huge volume of parliamentary speech. And can you just give us some numbers on just how much text you're actually looking at here? In work I've been uh, working on recently, I think I have something like half a million speeches. So I, uh, the original data that I had was every single speech that was made in the UK House of Commons from 1997 up to 2019. So we're talking millions and millions and millions of words and uh, millions of speeches. So yes, a very large amount of, um, of data that I, can, that I can analyze. And essentially, if I understand correctly, you're, you're, you're starting off with a basic dictionary, but then you're doing some very sophisticated stuff uh, with, uh, with computer analysis, with um, sort of artificial intelligence, can we use that kind of language, uh, in order to get the, 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 the system to learn about the, the language in context and read that language more effectively in context. Is that, that's, that's probably a horrible description of what you're doing, but is that roughly where you are? That's roughly where I'm at, yeah. So as with normal dictionary approaches, we still start with a list of words that are representative of the things that I want to measure. So um, this started, let's take uh, aggression, which is one of the styles that I measure. I went and read lots of parliamentary debates and came up with a list of aggressive words that I thought in the parliamentary context were representative of that concept. Um, what we then basically do is uh, we... Um, have this list of words and we see how all of the words in parliamentary speech are used in proximity to these words. 
So what we basically end up with is this idea that we can kind of know a word by the company that it keeps. Um, so we sort of um, learn based on the word, when politicians use words, how sort of representative they are to one another. So we sort of learn the meaning of words in the context specifically that we used it, that, that I'm interested in, which is parliamentary debate, but others have used it in other contexts. Um, so you basically end up with a score for each word of how representative it is of each of the concepts that I care about. So how aggressive that word is or how emotional that word is or um, um, how anecdotal that word is and things like that. And then, so through that, then you can work out uh, the degree to which women and men might be different in the degree to which they use these various different kinds of language. And you can also look at how that changes over time. Uh, so I guess an advantage of um, this uh, approach is that because you can analyse such a huge volume of material, you can look at uh, change over time. You can look at lots of different kinds of variation within this rather than just having a few bits of speech that you can compare quite roughly with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once these um, measures are in place, and importantly, once we're sure that the measures are working, which is something that perhaps Marcus and I can talk about in a moment, that sort of validating these approaches is obviously very important. Once you have these measures in place, you can study infinite amounts of questions. I mean, I'm obviously interested in, in gender specifically, but I also have information on sort of um, uh, previous educational backgrounds, occupational backgrounds, and these are all things that, um, that once you've got the measures in place and once we're sure they work, it's reasonably easy to assess these kind of important and interesting questions. Uh -huh. Great. Marcus, you're doing something, if I understand, that's quite, fairly similar to that in terms of methodology, but you're using a slightly different process in order to kind of train up your computer, if you like. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, I'm using a, what's called cl uh, very classic uh, supervised classification approach. So I basically, out of all my 300,000 speeches from the European Parliament I have, I take a random sample of speeches, I give them to human readers and, and provide a coding scheme and ask them, do you think, basically, in a very simplified way, do you think this is a popular speech or not? Of course, I, I line out some criteria, um, and then I take this, this random sample, uh, split it into two sub-samples. One is the training set, one is called test set, and then I train a machine based on this on these training set data um, to learn what features, what kind of words are representative of populist rhetoric based upon my coding scheme, and then I evaluate the performance of that classifier on this holdout sample, on the test sample, until it reaches satisfactory performance, and then I apply it to the remaining 300,000 speeches, basically. And my outcome scores then the probability with which my classifier thinks that this is a, this is a popular speech, and the higher the probability, the more populist the speech is, probably. So this is a very classic machine learning approach that is used in also in business context, for instance. So we have the case that insurance companies, if you, if you sign up online for an insurance, like they will take your age, your income, and all these factors that you need to fill out in this form, and they have a machine learning, they have a trained machine learning algorithm, which will tell them a probability that you will actually like either pay back your pay back your money or like that you will have an accident, and based on this they will calculate how expensive your your insurance is. So this is an approach that is widely applied across several different disciplines and in business and in industry basically everywhere nowadays. So we had better move on to find what you actually find out through uh, these techniques, otherwise we'll never get there. Uh, so Lottie, you are looking at whether there is change over time 
in differences between men and women in how they speak within Parliament. Do you want to say, first of all, what your initial ideas were, what your hypotheses were that you brought into this, and then you can tell us what you, you found as a result of that? I basically, me and I should say my co-author Jack Blumenau, it's not a paper that I'm just working on my own, have this expectation basically that um, politicians overall, but women politicians in particular, would have sort of less pressure to conform to gender stereotypes now than was true in the past. Um, and we outline in our work a number of reasons for this, uh, which include things from um, there's good evidence that uh, individuals in the population themselves have diverged from behaving in sort of traditional stereotypical ways over time. So women are decreasingly communal and increasingly, that word again, agentic over time. And politicians at the end of the day are people. So if people have changed, we would expect politicians to have changed too. Um, there's also good evidence that um, the, sort of the validity of these stereotypes in the eyes of the public has also changed over time. So we might think that voters would be sort of less likely to sanction women politicians now than they once did when they kind of when they violate these stereotypes. Um, and then, of course, within within the political realm itself, there's now sort of many more women politicians and many more leaders that are women than there once were. So um, what we think traditionally of sort of women's behaviour in, in the political realm might have been influenced greatly by, by this kind of increase of, of, of women in these roles. Um, so that's the sort of um, the theoretical argument that we outline for why we expect um, politicians to behave uh, in less kind of... Um, stereotypical ways, but particularly why women themselves might have no longer have to conform to stereotypes to the degree that they once did. And what do you find? Uh, exactly that. Um, so uh, we, uh, no, incredible, eh? So um, we uh, basically find that um, in the, so the, we look in the period of the 1990s until uh, 2019, and we find that um, in the 1990s, stereotypes were sort of broadly remarkable, remarkably true for how people behaved. So we saw that um, women used sort of much more positive emotional language, they were much more emotional, they, they used many more kind of anecdotes and human interest stories um, in, in the styles that they use. And men were sort of much more aggressive and more complicated in the language that they use and things like this. Um, but we find that firstly, there's an overall convergence over time between um, men and women's styles. So actually by the end of the period that we look at, there aren't that many differences anymore between how men and women speak. So we find that, you know, stereotypes were accurate in the 1990s and early 2000s, but they're no longer are. And importantly, we see that this change has happened because women have changed. So we find that across sort of almost all of the styles that we study, the largest changes from sort of year to year are because of changes in women's language use and not so much men's language use. So we find that kind of women decreasingly use these communal styles and increasingly use these sort of masculine uh, uh, stereotypical consistent styles. So they're sort of the more negative, they're more aggressive, um, they use more complicated language over time. So much of this story sounds wonderfully positive and, and uplifting that we're have declining influence of gender stereotypes in our politics, but then we have this sting on the in, in the tail that it turns out that that's just because women are behaving like men, like men traditionally have always behaved. You, you know, we might have hoped that having more women in politics would mean that uh, the style of politics would change and we would have a more compassionate, more listening form of politics, and it would it wouldn't be quite as combative and aggressive as traditional politics, as, as your evidence suggests, 
has been. But actually, you don't find that at all. You find it's the women who are adapting to be like men rather than the opposite. Yep, that, uh, that is what we find. Um, I think it's important to document this, actually, partly because there is this sort of popular strand of commentary that does suggest exactly what you've just said, that if we get more women into politics, then perhaps we can get rid of some of these sort of unattractive features of, of Westminster, you know, the sort of aggressive things we hear in PMQs and things like that. But you're right, like the work that I do actually suggests that, that this is unlikely to happen um, by just getting more women into politics. And I think that this is important for two reasons. I think that this is sort of it's bad for women, maybe, because it sort of sets them up to fail if we're getting them in and hoping that we're going to see sort of important improvements to these sorts of um, political aspects of political culture that we might not like. But I think it's also important if we, if we do see these sort of changes and important changes to deliberative, maybe moving to sort of um, more deliberative political culture and getting rid of some of these unattractive features. If we want to achieve this, we have to actually then look towards making structural changes to the way things are done and not just sort of adhere to these outdated stereotypes about behaviour. Yeah, so there's much more research to be done in order to find out just how we can really fundamentally change the nature of our politics. Um, Marcus, let's uh, turn to your research. So you're looking in particular at the circumstances in which uh, politicians in the European Parliament are more or less likely to use populist forms of rhetoric. Um, what are your hypotheses and what are your findings? So what I'm interested in is the differentiation between structural factors and, and situational factors that might explain uh, the usage of populist rhetoric. So a lot of work has been focused on these structural factors. We know, for instance, very well that the presence of populist rhetoric is something, if you look at it like a U-curve, so it's more extreme at the, at the ends of the political left-right spectrum. So we know that populism tends to correlate with extreme positions. So it's mostly used by politicians from extremist parties. We also know um, something that is also looks very similar if you look at not classical left-right, but like cultural progressive versus, versus conservative positions. But what we don't know much about is the, is the situational factors. And so what I'm looking at is whether things like issue salience, the relationship between the issue and the party, and, and the interaction of these two factors matter. And, and indeed they do. So politicians tend to talk more populist if an issue is very salient, so very important and topical in their home country. They tend to talk more populist if it's an issue that is central to their party's supporters and to themselves. So we see that politicians from center-left and left parties tend to talk more populist about issues that are somewhat relevant to them, so classically like economic issues, redistribution issues, welfare issues, whereas politicians from the right tend to talk more populist when it comes to issues such as terrorism, security, to some degree probably foreign, foreign politics and so on. And these, these two things interact. So, so the effect becomes stronger if you are a, a hardcore radical left party, you talk very populist, for instance, about an issue that is very important to your, to your voters, such as the finance regulations and stuff like that. So we do actually, I do actually find that, that some degree of the, to some degree the usage of populist rhetoric is, is structurally determined, but there's also quite a lot of situational decisions that, popular, that politicians actually use. And if I understand correctly, the idea here is that uh, essentially politicians are using populist rhetoric when they're trying to appeal to voters and voter, or, or the, the sorts of voters that they want to attract to their own cause. 
and they therefore use this rhetoric when voters are more likely to be paying attention. So on the issues that are important to voters, the issues that are part of the programme that this particular party is campaigning on with voters, is that, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, so the, there's always this question when you analyse parliamentary debates, to whom are these people actually talking? And of course it would be naive to assume that every citizen like, is very excited about a debate in Parliament and, and like turns on the radio every, every month or something like that. that unfortunately it doesn't happen. That's not how it works, right? But we do, I do believe that to some degree like politicians in Parliament actually do communicate to voters and I argue that it's most likely that their voters will listen when issues are debated that that are important to them. And this is also, um, of course, facilitated by politicians tweeting about their speeches, posting videos of their speeches on social media, and all these kind of activities that, that nowadays somehow belong to, to the task of being a member of parliament, both on the national, but especially also on the supranational level in, in the European parliament. Final question to each of you. We'll have to be very, very brief, I'm afraid, because we are, are pretty much out of time. But I'm just intrigued to know how the particular uh, research that we've been focusing on in our discussion here fits in with your wider PhD uh, projects and also maybe with your, you know, your aspirations for future research after the PhD as well. Uh, Lottie, do you want to say a few words on that? Absolutely. I mean, Marcus was just sort of hinting at some of this and what he was saying there. But of course, the obvious question is, um, where do voters come into this? And it obviously matters how voters engage with um, the ways in which politicians communicate. So in other work that I've been doing, I've been trying to use sort of survey experimental methods to understand whether it matters the sorts of styles that politicians use in terms of how voters will evaluate them and then whether sort of women politicians in particular have to sort of conform to stereotypes in order to sort of avoid um, negative evaluations um, from voters. And um, to hint at future work, I find that, um, that style has very important consequences for how voters evaluate politicians. So we like people when they're more emotional, we find people to be more competent when they use statistical evidence over anecdotal evidence, but I importantly don't find that this is gendered, so I don't see any evidence that women in particular are penalised for the kinds of styles that they use. Um, so these are the sorts of questions that I'm battling with at the moment and will be thinking about in, in work going forward. Great stuff, Lottie. And Marcus? Yes, for, for populism there's always this widely held assumption, right? That if you open a newspaper you can read this quite frequently, oh, populists use this incredible, appealing and persuasive language that somehow explains their success. And actually, we have some evidence of this, but on this, but, but this evidence is at best mixed. So we have some studies who, such, who suggest, yeah, actually, populist rhetoric might be persuasive. Others find no effect. Again, others might suggest something like a backlash effect or backfire effect that you can actually harm yourself, your reputation if you talk populist. So, so this will be part of my, my future research is... Um, is to actually look at like whether populist rhetoric is actually persuasive, whether voters tend to follow populist arguments more than non-populist arguments, and then to investigate what the consequences of using populist arguments for politicians are on both sides of, of the spectrum, basically. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating stuff from both of you. Um, we will look forward to seeing more of these projects and uh, watching the outputs come out into the public as well over the coming years. But thank you so much to Lottie Hargrave and Marcus Kohlberg for giving a little insight into the world of the UCL uh, PhD student.
Next week is Reading Week here at UCL, so the podcast will be taking a little break, but we'll be back again in two weeks' time when we'll be looking at the regulation of online media. Amidst allegations from Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen and steps towards tighter regulation in the UK and other democracies, what exactly are the problems and what are the potential solutions? As ever, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.